This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, which you can hear Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. And in fact, if you have been listening to the radio, to Times Radio, it's our birthday next week. We've been doing this now for a year uh, next week. So if you have been listening and you like it, I mean, you can get in touch if you don't like it, we just won't play it on the radio. But if you have been listening and you like it, we'd like to hear from you. When did you start listening? Highs and lows, the things that really stick in your mind. There might be things that go wrong. We don't mind that. Uh, But we'd like to hear from you. Record yourself a little voice note or a video and email me matt.shawley at times.radio. Uh, have you been listening to my show or maybe sticking out on Breakfast or Mariella Fostrop or John Pienaar or Giles Cohen or Hugo Rifkin or whoever it might be? Email me matt.shawley at times.radio. Record a little uh, a bit of audio or uh, a video, send it over and we'll play you out on the radio next week as long as you're nice. Or maybe we'll play some rude ones. Matt.Jolly at times.radio. Right, coming up on today's episode, we've heard so much in the past couple of years about the Red Wall. We speak to the man who invented the Red Wall, James Canagasorium. That's coming up next. In a moment, we'll have our columnist panel. But if you like the stuff that we talk about on the podcast, well, you can get the news, the views, the analysis, the investigations, the exclusives, the interviews, and all the business that you want by reading it online with The Times and The Sunday Times. And right now, you can get 50% off a digital subscription for six months. The sale is on now, but it ends on June the 29th. So get a wriggle on. Uh, just subscribe today. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. 50% off a subscription for six months. Lovely stuff. Right, coming up, James Canagasorium. First, our communist panel. Normally Thursday would be Night at the Marriott, but Indian Night and James Marriott have apparently taken the name of their feature a bit literally, and they're, they're both off. Uh, so instead, we've got Andy Sylvester from City AM and Mari Aurora from Redbox. Going on holiday, and the sort of... Oh, it's like an arms race to see who could be the most horrible to other countries for not coming in. Angela Merkel saying she doesn't want Brits travelling. Uh, well, she's already said you've got to quarantine if you go to Germany. She wants it uh, rolled out to the whole of 
uh, the EU. Uh, meanwhile, here, we're saying that actually maybe quite soon, Brits might be able to go abroad to ambulance countries and not uh, quarantine when they get back um, as long as you've had two doses of the vaccine. The politics of people's holidays is really interesting, isn't it, Mai? Funny one. I think everybody's desperate to go on holiday. Everybody's desperate to get some sun. Obviously, we're having quite nice weather at the moment, but you never know. Um, but I do think that uh, it's one of these things that ministers have to really balance carefully uh, when it comes to opening up too quickly or uh, being too lax with certain countries, etc. I mean, we saw what happened with the Delta variant and how that kind of came about. Um, and so I think that it's kind of like walking a tightrope with, with ministers and knowing um, where the line is and where to draw the line and when you're being unfair and when you're being um, too nice or, um, you know, too lax with things. So it's really difficult. But, yeah, um, Merkel's come out and kind of said that she wants uh, stricter um, regulations for UK travellers and she's not very pleased about um, Euro uh, 2020 football matches going on in the UK as well. So she's not having any of it. Um, but there hasn't seemed to be kind of any overall consensus with the EU when it comes to their travel regulations, which is kind of causing a part of this um, disagreement. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, they're saying that they might be putting places on the green list, such as the, uh, is it the Balearics? I never know how to pronounce that word. I'm going to go for Balearics. Um, I think that's, that's what I'd islands. say. But other, yeah, 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 that's fine. We'll agree that that's the, that's, the right, <laughs> that's the right way to do it. Yeah, they're saying there might, there might be a couple of places stuck on the list of, to join Gibraltar as somewhere that you can go on holiday. Um, Andy, um, it, it, it's sort of difficult, isn't it? Because, it, well, I know Twitter is not Britain, but you look at, on the one hand, there is uh, a storm of anger. Why can't I, you know, people who want to go on holiday and people who've maybe booked holidays thinking they might have been able to go by now uh, and the government is sort of standing in the way. On the other hand, there's a whole parallel universe of people sharing graphs showing that the number of cases in the UK is rocketing. They're blaming the, the, the late decision to, to shut the door to people from India and letting the Delta variant in. Um, and so once again, Boris Johnson is sort of stuck in that position of having to make a decision, knowing that he's going to upset one of those two groups. A rise in number of cases, of course, Matt, but not necessarily a significant rise in hospitalizations or deaths. There is a rise, but nothing like the sort of proportional rise that we saw at the start of the pandemic, because we have a vaccine. We have a number of vaccines that work. I find this whole debate utterly absurd. I think by talking about this fear of variants, we're essentially doing politics of, of hypotheticals. And you've got me on my soapbox now. Um, and, you know, we always talk about holidays and people wanting a bit of sun. Fine. That is one element of it. I would love to be in Spain right now, um, sitting in 34 degrees heat, drinking sangria. But also... This is a interconnected global country now. You know, more than a quarter of the children living in the UK under the age of 18 have a parent who was born abroad. That parent might well still be abroad. Um, we've got 9 million people in the UK who were born abroad, um, who have families abroad, who they haven't seen for 18 months. And we talk about this in, in isolation as if it's, it really is just about holidays and Boris does this sort of, oh, gosh, it's going to be difficult to go away, um, but maybe you could enjoy going to Cornwall. Well, actually, this is about people meeting up with their families Again, you know, this is about uh, Britain becoming, uh, you know, a player on the international stage. And I fear um, that the government is slipping into a sort of policy by focus group in which they keep being told that actually this is quite a popular policy and people are quite, quite happy about um, just uh, sort of going on holiday Cornwall or whatever. This, that's not what this is about. This is suddenly fortress Britain, and if we're not careful, um, we're going to end up in the sort of Australia-New Zealand club of countries that are never going to open again, just in case. And in particular, um, Mari, given the number of people who've, who've had 
at least one dose. You know, it was 40-odd million. I think I've had two doses now. Um, by the time we get to the latest shifted deadline of July the 19th, millions and millions and millions of people in Britain will have had uh, both doses. And there comes a point, doesn't there, where Boris Johnson and the government generally, and maybe we all just have to grow up a bit and just say, this is the thing we've got to live with. Uh, you've been offered your vaccine. If you've chosen not to take it, that's your business. But we've got to get on and get back to normal. We don't shut... You know, there's even the talk this week about another lockdown in the winter for flu. We never locked down for flu before, and 10,000, 20,000 people died from it. But maybe there's a case for rolling out the flu vaccine more. But we have to just... Um, at some point, we have to to open up and say this is a thing that we're going to live with, and we can't have we can't aim for zero deaths from coronavirus. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think at some point um, there needs to be a level of balance. There needs to be a level of um, you know. At the end of the day, I think it's I don't know how to say this without sounding so controversial, but death is a part of life. Um, you know, it's a reality. It doesn't mean that we should just go crazy and let everyone die from a pandemic. But at the same time, there does need to be a balance where we need to get to a point where, you know, people like you say, tens of thousands of people die of, of flu in a year. Um, and that is a fact of life. So there needs to be a kind of a reasonable balance where we get back to some semblance of normality and freedom and, you know, enjoying life for, rather than just hiding away from life. Um, and, and it's about kind of negotiating that balance. So, yeah, I mean, and I think the other thing that we need to remember is we, you know, we can't be spending all of our time preserving life if there's no life worth living, if we can't do anything, we can't go anywhere and everybody's careers and, um, you know, kind of finances or whatever have been completely decimated. Not everybody. Some people have done very well out of the pandemic, but I, you know, people close to me and my friends and family and things have really struggled, um, you know, being self-employed or being in the arts or whatever it might be. And I think that um, at some point we have to make that call where we say, right, we need to have, life back and um you know people will still die of covid but people also die of flu and people also die of pneumonia and and other things and and at some point we need to say okay you know this is a reasonable level that we can cope with on the subject of uh you know, not quite nanny well government some people say it's government nanny statism but certainly the government sort of trying to mandate how we live our lives in the in the name of public health uh, the times uh, revealing today on the front page, junk food giants will be banned from advertising online. Adverts subject to a near total online ban and a 9pm television watershed. By the end of next year, fast food and confectionery giants will be banned from advertising products high in fat and sugar online, but there will be exemptions for smaller producers. Where were you on this, Andy? Is this a good way to try and tackle uh, obesity levels and improve, you know, one of the... Obesity was a big aggravating factor with coronavirus. Is this exactly the thing that should be uh, the government should be doing? Or is this more nanny statism? I mean, uh, if, frankly, if I want to eat a Twix, I should be able to eat a, eat a Twix. Uh, you should be able to eat a Twix, Matt, and I don't think you will say, have a Twix. If we say Twix because... enough, they might send us a box. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you get a, send a... Send a carton over here as well. Um, no, I, I think it's utterly ludicrous. I think it's utterly absurd. Um, and it won't work in the same way that invariably all of these interventions before, this gradual sort of creeping authoritarianism about what we can and can't have advertised to us at certain times of the day um, haven't worked. Um, and I just... It, it, the very fact that the government is also going to carve out an exemption for small businesses um, that will be able to advertise, you know, either online or, or in the middle of daytime TV 
um, simply because they've got fewer employees than McDonald's or Burger King, just points to how utterly absurd. It's as if the pandemic has given government a sort of sudden desire to deliver ever more complex rules with carve-outs of exemptions and all sorts um, that they won't get out of. So, no, I think it's utterly absurd. I think there are 101 different policy interventions that you come up with to tackle childhood obesity. And fundamentally, it starts with doing a bit more running around at school and not signing off the school fields, which is what, of course, happened under this coalition government a few years ago. Well, that is, yes, that is that is a key point. Actually, encouraging uh, exercise and thinking more uh, healthy is probably going to make the difference of whether or not something's being advertised on the on the TV or online. Uh, Marmy, what do you think about this? Yeah, I, I'm a bit more mixed than Andy, actually. Uh, in some ways, I, I am slightly kind of concerned um, around how extreme it seems to be. However, I do think that, you know, we do need to seriously look at our eating habits, seriously look at our childhood obesity levels. I mean, I was speaking um, a few weeks ago to uh, an academic in uh, Glasgow University who was basically talking about how actually obesity is quite kind of um, closely linked to how badly or how well we're going to um, be able to deal with future pandemics because we know that obesity, you know, if you're obese or morbidly obese, you're potentially more likely to suffer from COVID, die from COVID, etc. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit more um, open to it because I do think that we have a bit of a crisis in this country about what we eat and how often we eat, you know, absolute trash. And it's normalised. <laughs> and, and children are raised on terrible food. And people are raised on food that, you know, not to sound too dramatic, but is actively damaging their bodies. And I, I, I don't know if this is the, the solution. Maybe it's about uh, kind of raising awareness and a level of understanding scientifically and kind of more in-depth understanding of actually what these things do to your body. Because my concern is that there are a lot of young people and children eating this stuff who, you know, not saying they'd be interested in learning about it, but do they really, really know what these things do to them? Um, I don't know. I don't think I did when I was young. I didn't know, think I knew what a Twix was going to do to me if I ate one every single day. So I think that there, there needs to be a level of education around actually, okay, what is this going to do to you and why um, is it so important? Rather than just, oh, let's cook a pizza with some peppers on and then you've learned how to make a pizza dough once and then you never do it ever again, which was my experience at school. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so the full list, the new rules will apply to soft drinks, cakes, chocolate, ice cream, pastries, biscuits, milkshakes, breakfast cereals, pizza, ready meals, crisps, chips and other breaded and battered <laughs> meals. I mean, that's my idea of a night out, that. Um, uh, but anyway, never mind. We've mentioned Twix plenty of times. Annie Sylvester there and Mario Rory. And of course, you can get uh, the Red Box Morning email produced by Patrick Maguire and Mario Rory. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. Up next is my chat with James Canagasorium. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, uh, we've talked so much about the Red Wall on the podcast and on the radio over the past couple of years. But my next guest is the man who coined the term. This is my interview with James Kanagasori. just a good excuse to play a good song. We need to talk about walls coming down. It started with the Red Wall and then after the Cheshire and Amersham by-election last week, suddenly it was the Blue Wall. Lib Dem leader Ed Dave even bought himself a novelty hammer. 
and bashed through a blue wall of plastic bricks. Well, my next guest is to blame. Polster and analyst James Canagasorium coined the term red wall back in 2019 uh, to describe areas in the north whose constituencies used to vote for Labour and started drifting elsewhere. Uh, And obviously Brexit played a big part in that too. Before that, James helped the Tories win 13 seats in Scotland in 2017, so he knows quite a bit about what's going on north of the border too. He's also come up with a a, a unified field theory that helps to explain all the modern political shocks of recent years, Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, uh, and all of that. He thinks that the key to all these surprises is that people with low levels of social trust actually turned out to make themselves heard. So... What we're going to do is we're going to pick his brains so we can all sound terribly clever about what the next wall is that we're going to look at. James is here now. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Nice to have you with us. So let's start with the red wall. Your original, because de- now it's just like anything north of Watford. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, is just part of the red wall. Uh, what was your original definition of what is the red wall? Yeah, thanks for having me on, and it's it's kind of good to clear this up because I think <laughs> the, the term "red wall" has come to mean everything and therefore nothing, uh, which is which has been one of the developments. Look, the the original thesis I think came about in August 2019, and the definition started with an analysis of areas that um, how they voted basically. So you build what's called a regression model, and you work out the extent to which areas and constituencies in England and Wales were Conservative or Labour and the extent to which they should have been based on their demographics. And then what you then look at is what's the difference. So in other words, where is a party massively overperforming or massively underperforming versus the people that are in those seats? And I think, you know, this is a type of analysis I'm, I'm, I, I quite like doing. It's one I've done a lot. But what was really striking about doing it back in August 2019 is that when we analysed the Conservative vote um, and looked about where it was underperforming, there was just a string of contiguous seats, basically ranging from North Wales, uh, so kind of Clwyd, all the way up through uh, Lancashire, Yorkshire, all stringing out almost to the, to the other coast around Lincolnshire. And there was also a separate other group of seats around the northeast. And for me, what was really striking, first of all, they were all strung together. Second of all, they were they were sandwiched next to existing Labour seats, which formed a kind of cro- a, a break uh, against rural Conservative England that basically starts north of London and goes all the way up uh, to a kind of parallel. It's kind of a <laughs> I don't want to get into the kind of anecdotes <laughs> about parallels there, but. Um, functionally, you know, there was all red. It was, they were all areas that should be more conservative based on the people that lived there. And when you say that, what, what sort of people are we talking about? People who voted for Brexit? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Or is it work, Brexit? Uh, it, income, the, yeah, well, it's great lifestyle. Question. You know, these are areas that were low density, right? So many of the areas of the so called Red Wall, they're quite large. There's, you know, they're huge elements of countryside. Um, lots of car owners in those areas, lots of people with mid-levels of affluence. Um, you know, people, a lot of people who are married, marital status is a key marker of, in an area, of an area voting Conservative. And if you just looked at these areas from space without knowing about the political history of these areas, it was surprising that they were all Labour. Um, and you know, the second kind of criteria was those areas had already been drifting away from the Labour Party. So I think from around since 2005, a lot of those seats had started to have a slow, gradual decline from the Labour Party. Now, initially, 
those votes would go everywhere. So some of them would go conservative, some of them would go to uh, radical parties on the left, radical parties on the right, lots of non-voting, decline in turnout. And what you see is a fragmentation of the Labour vote, but slowly over time, and particularly with the 2017 election, which is the kind of, it's a shadow phantom election where a lot of these trends were taking place, but you just couldn't see it because of the, the wider story of the surge of Jeremy Corbyn. Basically, the Conservatives had moved from nowhere to somewhere. So many of these seats had the Conservatives in and around the 2017 election at around 30%. So you're talking about areas that should be more Conservative but aren't for cultural historical reasons. So, but what you mean is that, that if you are married, you live in a rural area and you own your own car, yeah. that tends to mean you're more likely to vote Conservative. Correct. However, in some of these areas, there was a sort of tradition of voting Labour. Exactly. And was it Brexit that broke that tradition? That made people then vote more like they would have done if they'd just fallen from space? Definitely preceded Brexit. So a lot of these okay. trends are visible from 2010 to 2015, which is a gradual rise in the Conservative vote share across many of these areas, which you can see with local election data as okay. well as the kind of constituency data. I think Brexit then sped up a pre-existing trend. Um, but what I would have to say is that the, the Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party massively then sped that up. And I would say his kind of second phase of his leadership, so post the 2017 election. So you basically had... Very long-term factors, which is a lot of these areas. The other thing to say is that a lot of these areas have actually changed versus what they were. A lot, a lot, you know, many seats that were Labour for ages, so like Tony Blair's seat, Sedgefield in the northeast. The Sedgefield of today is very different from the Sedgefield of 1997. It's a good deal more affluent. There are many more homeowners. It's a lot older, and you know, functionally, the actual seats themselves have changed, even though the name hasn't changed. And so, from that, it was clear that there were lots of, if I can put it. In, if you've got a dashboard, a lot of lights are, are lighting yeah. up. There are green lights everywhere. You've got Corbyn, you've got Brexit, you've got long-term structural factors, you've got the actual seats changing. And to my mind, this was all very concentrated in particular areas, which made me think um, that, that something could potentially happen, which was as the Conservative Party became more attractive to kind of working-class voters. And some of that is related to Brexit, but some of it is not at all. This is, you know... To take this out of the context of the UK, this is a trend that's visible across centre-right, centre-left, across the developed world. Like, you know, centre-right parties across a number of different geographies have started to become more popular amongst working-class people. And the opposite is true of centre-left parties, which are beginning to pick up graduates and higher-income voters. Which is what we've seen in America. The, the Democrats uh, have moved towards the, mm. the sort of younger, better-educated, and the Republicans, are, you know, Donald Trump in particular, managed to reach a sort of working-class uh, type of voter who who maybe wouldn't have voted Republican before. Well, I think the state started that that process started much longer yeah. ago. So you know, well, yeah, everything starts. The part, the, the, <laughs> comes you know, next. The party of Reagan and the, the areas that Reagan won are, are still quite similar to the areas that the Conservatives hold today. And, and Carter on the left, you know, that's still quite similar to the Labour coalition. I think you know they're twenty twenty five years ahead. I think it's important to note though that that change isn't necessarily inexorable. Yeah, you know, you hear you hear the term realignment a lot which i guess we're going to talk about today <laughs> and yes it's gone in one direction yes it's visible yes it produces new swing seats new areas new bases but it's not necessarily something that will always be that way um joshua uh messaged in and said are you annoyed that your original definition of an incisive analysis of the red ball has been stretched to mean something else that's much vaguer or is that just a silly thing to complain about I think annoyed is a good question, Josh. It's one I get asked a lot. 
I think, first of all, no one has ownership over those people or, or, or a term. I think um, what I regret is not defining it uh, very, very clearly up front. Like I had privately and I had that analysis. But I think what it's done is, is it's provided a simplification that I think is unfortunate. I think tagging people, remain, leave, red wall, non-red wall, that comes with lots of issues. It papers over the very diff, uh, very big differences in those areas. The other thing I think I slightly think is unfortunate is the confusion about whether red wall is a, is, is a geographic term or whether it's to describe people. And I think people do that interchangeably. They talk about red wallers and then you've got the red wall and then it's it's come to mean everywhere north of london and the, 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 the reality is it was very very specific and on the on the specifics we've talked a lot about it, the hartlepool by-election a few weeks ago we got the balance mm. by-election next week they both get talked of in terms of red war but, but is it why well, neither of them are in your original i think that actually they, they both were they both were yeah they both were um i think for different reasons you know hartlepool had to be 73 72% leave yeah. based on i think the constituency estimates of chris hanretti um, had all the demographic features that you'd expect. Hartlepool, the seat, is, is very big, right? It's it's not just the, the city of Hartlepool. The 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 rural parts of it make up a huge area, and it's very coterminous with very large rural bits of the northeast and and uh, and elsewhere. Batley was a bit more difficult to place there, but it came up in the analysis because um, had a very very large what, what's called a conservative negative residual. The conservative vote was very suppressed there. But it's a lot more remaining. I think from memory, it's about 60% leave. It has a very, very different kind of demographic composition. It's far more ethnically diverse, uh, much more urban-based. But nonetheless, it did fit the profile. I mean, you raised the question of Batley. Um, one of the e- interesting features of the Red Wall, which is why it's good to go underneath a term and actually talk about people and areas, is that you know, there's something very specific in, in West Yorkshire, which is, you know, th- those are the areas that I think in 2019 sh- showed the least amount of alignment versus elsewhere. So if you looked at the picture in South Yorkshire, if you looked at the picture around Lincolnshire, if you looked at the picture around North Wales, huge, huge swings from the Labour Party to the Conservative, big pickups of the of the ex kind of 2015 UKIP vote. Around West Yorkshire, and you would have seen this with Tracy Babin's victory in, in the in the mayoralty. It's a bit different. The, it it wasn't quite the same. That's interesting. Yeah, trying to read things across, even within counties, never mind across the country. Um, and so, what about uh, the blue wall? Is mm. the the blue wall is now the thing? Just the counterpoint of the red wall? Yeah, I'm. Yeah. Are you clear what the blue wall is? No, I'm. I'm skeptical. I'm not. I'm not sure we can start calling everywhere a wall i know it makes people <laughs> i know it makes people's lives you shouldn't easier. have played that music now you completely <laughs> ruined the whole premise of our conversation uh, I, look, look there's clearly a countervailing effect to the trends that have led to the 2019 election result you know the fact is huge groups of people who were labor or non-voters shifted to the right it stands to reason that if that happens, there's going to be a countervailing effect. I think the key thing here is there's a big difference in geography. I'm not convinced that there's just a massive, huge blue wall that's quite the same. Like, there is some evidence that it's that you know in the outer areas that are suburban and slightly out of city centres, there is a structural effect of a slightly weakening vote on the centre right and a pickup on the left. But it doesn't have the same features that we discussed first up. For example, there's no evidence that there is a suppressed Labour vote. 
um, or a suppressed liberal vote in that reason. You know, those areas have voted as they basically should do if you kind of demographically look at it, right? There's no latent trapped 10, 20, 25% vote. Second of all, it's not clear that the votes accrue if they shift away from the right to any particular left-wing party or progressive party. You know, you would have seen this from the local election results. Some votes going green, some votes liberal, some votes Labour. It's, it's not clear that, that there's going to be a mass transfer. I think the other uh, thing to note is, yes, there has been long, there is long term realignment in bits of the South, um, particularly, I would say, the South as you go more to the West, uh, particularly around Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Berkshire. But it doesn't quite yet have, you know, that feels much more long term and feels less inexorable than what happened in the Red Bull. You know, the Red Bull was like 20, 25, 30 years in the making. I'm not convinced that having the blue ball term i saw the video i kind of my head was in my hands and i'm sorry the video of ed davy in his his wall but it's very striking um my sense is the jury's out on 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 whether there is really a blue wall or whether we're just talking about a by-election or trends james one of the things i'm uh, interested in you touched on it a bit was this idea of sort of people talk about realignment it's all fundamentally changed these seats that were labor now fundamentally toy how much of that is long-term? You talked about 20, 30 years in the making. And how much of it is just sort of short-term? Boris Johnson at the moment's got a decent uh, you know, you know, message, better slogans. He's in power, which tends to help because you can splash the cash around a bit and that sort of thing. Keir Starmer's not setting the world alight. Were the Labour Party to have a different leader, the Tory party to have a different leader, how much difference would that make? You've sort of got, you know, the... The, the day-to-day noise against the long-term trends, which is the more sort of impactful? So there's a great paradox at the heart of realignment, which is it's only really visible when there's big political change and popularity or unpopularity with a leader that's nothing to do with realignment. So when the tide goes out or it comes in, suddenly a whole new raft of seats become marginal. So do you see there's a, <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a fundamental paradox here? Um a good example, right, would have been the 2017 election versus the 2019. You know, the changes in seats in vote share for each party um, at the 2017 election and 2019 election are very similar. So where the Labour vote went up in 2017 is fairly similar to where it kind of went up, but probably by less in 2019 or down slightly less. Yeah. And the same thing with the Conservative Party. So that's the paradox. You know, ultimately, it is the party brands, leadership, all sorts of things not to do with alignment. But when structurally um, a party is doing particularly well or particularly badly, that's when alignment becomes visible because suddenly you're like, oh, that seat that had a 30,000 majority, suddenly it's in play or 25,000 majority. So I think for that reason, the normal stuff in politics that matters still matters much more, I think, than realignment. And what are the things that matter? I mean, what difference does it make uh, in terms of the leader... Um, you know, the, 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 you know, Boris Johnson essentially, you know, stealing lots of Labour's clothes, particularly when it comes mm. to, to spending and that sort of thing. So how can Keir Starmer counter a Tory party which is refusing to behave like Tories? Uh, um, you know, because normally the Tory party, you know, wants to cut and the Labour party comes along and says, well, we'll spend more money. If Boris Johnson's spending all this money, I mean, he's mainly, you know, in battle with his own chancellor rather than with the mm. opposition on this. So, so how can a Labour Party take on the current t- Conservative Party? Keir Starmer, but I'm not sure there's anyone left in his office uh, right now because he seems to have sat them all. If he picked up the phone to you and said, what should I be doing? What, what can a Keir Starmer-led Labour Party do right now? Well, I think, first of all, I would de 
personalize the the the, the question um the relationship one of, one of the things in political science that is still true the last 10 years have seen massive shocks really unexpected outcomes uh you know the eu referendum the 2015 surprise election the 2017 surprise hung parliament the 20 you know, the scale of the 2019 almost landslide um but there are a couple of political science truisms that are still there one of them is the relationship between leader ratings and the lead that the government has over the opposition so when you what your question is what you know, ultimately, that, that that is still a straight line relationship. It basically predict, predicts every single election outcome since 1979. I think your question over what they should do, if we just take a step back there, I think the main issue here is how do progressive forces organise themselves? Because a world in which the Liberal Democrat Party is resurgent or is a partner is very different to one where you're actually just trying to take all its voters. And I think... Because there isn't an existing model or understanding of, okay, there are these three parties. If there are going to be three parties, they should probably distinguish themselves more rather than Labour, Lib Dems and Greens. Exactly. And I think, actually, I think uh, to be to to be fair and to depersonalise it, because I think a lot of people are talking about here and a lot about different personalities. But actually, I think the fundamental way that things are organised is the major question. I'll let you, let you have a glass of water because I see if you can reach for the water then I'll ask you another question. Now, you wrote a, um, uh, you wrote a piece for The Times last week or the week before about... Because yeah. we talk, we're talking here about, you know, these places have moved in that direction mm. and this is happening and these are the trends and you look at this chart and all of that yeah, well, as yeah. if human beings do what they're supposed to do. And as soon as, soon as someone reaches a particular age and they buy a car, they start voting Tory, so that's fine. Mm. And the piece that you wrote was really interesting. It was about how people are really annoying and they hold contrary views mm. all the time, which makes predicting what they're going to do more difficult. Which kind of runs countervailing to the whole Red Wall thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, no one's pointed that out on a national radio show. But um, what I was trying to articulate in my piece for the times is that the the middle centrist voters are actually very contradictory they can take a huge number of view different views on different demographic planes and different attitudinal planes that go against each other i mean the example that i used is that roughly 70 to 75 percent of people take a very hard line view on the issue of shemima begum um having her british citizenship that's very striking, right? Because that's not that's not a Leave coalition, that's not a populist coalition, that's almost everyone. But increasingly, many, many people are very, very concerned about climate change, which has tended to be a very progressive opinion. But And the fact is, no one talks about what I would call the Shemima Began but climate change concerned group of voters, right? Because <laughs> functionally, those are two different things that are cognitively dissonant. But actually... That represents a lot of where normal people are. That's interesting. That is interesting. And in terms of, um, I touched on it briefly, but you, this this thing about low social trust mm. and the role of that that actually that you were talking about all those big shocks, both you know here and also in America too. Um, one of the commonalities in all of those big electoral shocks mm. has been people, the sort of people who've come out to vote. Yeah. Well. This is a separate uh, piece of analysis that we did, which was to try and understand polling shocks. And one of the things that was most clear about the recent 2020 US presidential election was actually the error was explained 
by the fact that there were missing from the polls people who didn't trust other people, didn't trust pollsters, didn't trust institutions, didn't trust what they would call the you know, typical media organisations. Um, but what was really striking is that they were divided into two groups, which kind of hid each other. The, the first was um, a large group of older whites, white working class people who live in very rural areas and rural states. But the second tended to be more left-leaning, Democrat-leaning ethnic minorities um, who were low trust. And actually, they hit each other because if you run a poll and you say, who is low trust? If you put those two together, they kind of look like the country. Yeah. <laughs> but the reality... <clears throat> Sorry, Matt. Got That's a, right. No, I've been asking got you about Got a, got a, got a, got a <laughs> pap right today. Um, they hit each other. So, so that when you were looking at, so that because they they sort of almost cancelled each other out, there were sort of similar sized groups, and then that similarly explains some of the things that happened in other elections. That those groups of people who who didn't necessarily, you know, who didn't trust institutions, didn't trust other people, but they came out to vote in ways that we haven't always expected them to, so they don't get included in polls and that. Exactly. Sometimes expecting is a shock. In the last couple of minutes, we've got then uh, we've demolished the blue wall theory. Uh, we've we've well, not necessarily. We've tried to take yeah. back control of the red wall theory. <laughs> What's the next trend that we should be looking at uh, that you're particularly interested in, or you're currently investigating? What's the What's the thing that's happening in British politics right now, which will be the, which will everyone will claim to have predicted in a twelve months' time, but you'll be taking credit for? Well, oh, I don't, I don't, <laughs> if I can get my words out with my bad throat, um, I'm very interested in the future of BAME voters. My sense is historically, traditionally, the, the, you know, is it a meaningful term? I'm not sure. But traditionally, people who are not white have voted for the Labour Party disproportionately, massively, you know, 70, 75%. I think that's starting to fracture. That's and it's starting to fracture very quickly and very differently, depending on the subcategory of BAME that you're looking at. Um, and I think, you know... Let's see what happens in, in, in future elections. But my sense is things are changing. I know, you know, Matt Singh recently released a poll that I think showed a 15 point, 10 to 15 point increase uh, or swing from left to right. And my strong sense is that amongst some minority groups, they may be starting to vote more like other, uh, other citizens based on their demographics. And is that like a, a generational thing as well, maybe, that the, as... Britain as a country becomes more diverse. It uh, and people, you know, third, fourth, fifth generations mm. just behave like everyone else in Britain. I think that's that, and you would have seen a bit of it in the twenty twenty election with the Hispanic yeah. vote. Yeah, and I think that's a thing that's that's coming down the road, and I think it could be as surprising as the Red Wall. And just very quick, because I know in the past when I've spoken to pollsters about this, it's always been very difficult to poll because mm. you're. It's quite easy to say, well, how old are you, or how. Uh, but then when you start trying to get into people's, you know, how, how they identify their ethnicity, um, it's quite difficult to categorise. Um, is that changing? Are pollsters now finding ways to try and capture that? Yeah, you have to be more flexible. Um, you have to be culturally sensitive. You have to be able to ask and conduct a poll potentially in multiple languages.
Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.